Thank you for joining us for this episode of the IPI Policy Basics Podcast. Today's topic is, what is permissionless innovation? We're coming to you today from the studios of Salem Media Group in Dallas, Texas. I'm Tom Giovanetti, the president of the Institute for Policy Innovation. With these IPI Policy Basics podcast episodes, we are building an audio reference library on basic policy concepts and topics for those who want to learn and understand how to think about policy or for those who need to get up to speed on a particular issue. Today, I'm fortunate to be joined in studio by IPI Senior Research Fellow Bartlett Clellan. And today, Bartlett, we want to talk about permissionless innovation. Now, this is a term that's been thrown around quite a bit in the last few years in the area of sort of technology and innovation policy, but it's a really important topic. So I'm really glad we have an opportunity to cover this with you today. Absolutely. Thank you. I, uh, actually, even before we get to the notion of permissionless innovation, which kind of trucks together, honestly, mm-hmm. it's almost it's almost a little weird to separate those two words apart from each other. Yeah. I do think it's worth asking and and positing what is innovation and innovation is a really slippery concept at, mm-hmm. at some level because it's so huge, but yet it really has some characteristics, I guess I would say. And to me, the, the easiest way to think about it is some marginal improvement of, of yeah. something. So yeah. that can come in a lot of, a lot of different ways. Uh, and, and the word marginal is really important there because people tend to think about just like huge blockbusters and right. huge, big revolutionary things. Right. But 99% of the time, that's not what innovation is. Right. Most innovations you don't notice. Yeah. Um, yeah. In, in fact, I, I haven't thought this through exactly, but I'll, I'll see if it works. So um, our phones are almost constantly getting pushed updates. Mm-hmm. Those updates, virtually every update is an innovation over whatever was before, because right. otherwise they likely wouldn't have done it. So it's fixing mm-hmm. something, it's addressing th- something, it's making something easier, it's making something more valuable. Um, all those are innovations. Uh, I think an easy swap in and out word here, uh, innovation happens in creation as well. So if something new gets created or there's a modification of a creation, we think of that in our, in our own copyright world, you can't copy the exact material, but you can read a story and be inspired by that story and write your own story in your own world that you've created. And and that's perfectly okay. So you read a a, 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 what a romance novel mm-hmm. and, and that happens in Scotland and then you write a romance novel with totally different characters that happens in France guess what you're that's okay yeah uh, and so but that is an innovation off of that previous uh, that previous notion so all these things are innovation to me innovation is is kind of fundamentally a response to a, a need that's been illuminated and I'm going to say in the marketplace of ideas it could be in an, actually a product space but those products start with an idea so uh, to me, innovation is a fundamental outcome of a of a free market. And getting rid of that kind of free market, you suddenly don't know what what innovation should be because yeah. it starts getting dictated. This point will be important as we go on. One thing I wanted to uh, uh, chat about a little bit with you, Tom, is that so IPI can has three guiding principles, three guiding lights, I guess, mm-hmm. in, in the things we pursue. Uh, one is freedom. Uh, one is growth, economic growth. The other is innovation. It, th- those other two are really, really big concepts. So how does innovation, do you think, fit in with those other two? Yeah, I, well, I think that it's it's kind of interesting because there's almost a formula there. You know, I think that if you have freedom, first of all, uh, then the normal human capacity to create and invent and improve is simply going to flourish naturally. 
I think that that comes from freedom, right? And then I think, you know, if you take that sort of freedom plus innovation, one of the things you get is you get growth, you get economic growth, right? right? But it actually works the other way around too, I think, because economic growth also helps to fuel the next cycle, the next generation of innovation, because it takes both an increase in financial capital and also human capital, right? Knowledge, tech transfer, you know, knowledge development and things like that to come up with that next next wave of innovation. So you're right. Those are not just cool words we picked out of the air. You know, <laughs> they, they all relate and they all sort of describe the policymaking space that we consider to be so important that that's what we devote ourselves to. I'm interested in asking you, and I don't mean to put you on the spot, but I'm interested in asking you what you think the relationship is between innovation and progress. Because, I mean, we clearly have a progress culture in the United States and in the West. The United States in particular has been, from its very beginning, a source of innovation. But not all countries and not all cultures are characterized by that kind of innovation, that kind of progress, right? In, in fact, many are not. Right, exactly. And, I, you know, some of that, I think, you know, comes from just like literally like a worldview. Like, like I, I think until recently, like if you were in India and you have, you have a worldview that the world just is a constant series of cycles and nothing ever changes, right, then that's not going to drive a lot of innovation. Right. If, if you don't think, you know, history is actually headed somewhere, if you don't think you can have any influence, on the future, right? Then, then why try to invent something new? Why try to improve something? Um, so I, I do think there's a lot of sort of cultural angles to that, but it's one thing that we should appreciate in the United States that our, our country from its very inception has been characterized by progress and innovation. And if you really think about it, like the, the first people to come to this country uh, were devoting themselves to improvement and progress and something better. You know, so it's almost like it's it's almost like we in the United States are genetically wired to expect innovation and progress just by the nature of our country. Well, there's inherently a notion of risk. Um, right. I, I, I think. We, well, in fact, I think in, in all three of the the big three, as I call them. So in growth and freedom and in innovation, there is an in, inherent notion of risk that's that's buried in there. Mm -hmm. um, and you think of the same. This is not my original thought. People have said this often, but you think of how people ended up on these shores. So not the Native Americans, mm -hmm. um, although uh, depending on which uh, theory is holds, uh, Native Americans in this in the United States came from elsewhere. They, right. they still migrated yes. to, for something better. Yeah, they took risks too. Th yeah. th that's right. Uh, and, and I don't pretend to understand what all those uh, decisions were, but, mm -hmm. but they did take a risk to go somewhere else, pres uh, presumably with a pursuing game, with a pursuing... Uh, uh, you know, I would say they were living up north and they said, hey, we could get down to Southern California, so let's go down this way. Uh, <laughs> I, would, I would do the same. Yeah. But whatever they were doing, they were, right. they were improving their situation. Right. Um, and then that continues to a very, to a very, uh, to, to today, frankly, as, as uh, refugees come here um, or people opt to come here. And some people have posited that part of the reason we have this risk-taking culture, we have this innovation-minded culture, we have this growth-directed culture is because that is, in fact, in our DNA. The, yeah. the people who have we've self-selected to be in a place uh, among other risk, risk takers, uh, smaller or larger, and certainly there are plenty of people who are not. Yeah. Uh, uh, particularly as as history advances, the United States theoretically, not everyone here would be in that same mindset. Yeah. Uh, but yes, I think that's very important, and I do think that has everything to do with progress. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and kind of pick your flavor of progress. I, I, right. I think it absolutely. It's interesting. You, when you, you, you and I have both made references to just like 
innovation and progress just being in our DNA or in, or in our worldview, right? But if you actually think about it, it was also the nature of the American landmass, right? Like you think about like the Western migration. I mean, just the fact that there's more out there to be had, right? You know, I mean, <laughs> if, if, if you were born in, you know, if you were born into a very highly class-oriented society, like like in in great in Great Britain or England or something like that, um, you know, there's country's already pretty much full. <laughs> right. you know, London's already pretty much full. You know your place. You're told what your place is, right? And then you look at the United States, and holy cow! I mean, if you can if you can if you can snag a horse, you can go out there and snag some land. That's right. You know, there's there's new exciting stuff to be had. So it's, I think it's in our spirit and in our in our worldview. But I think it's also just the nature of this continent that it just has just offered opportunity at every turn. I think that's right. Uh, I'll, I'll mention natural resources as another mm-hmm. one of those things that certainly drove a lot of the expansion, drove a lot of risk taking, a lot of economic uh, risk taking in particular. But so we've kind of defined now that we have this innovation culture, uh, but that's okay. There, there are multiple ways to get to innovation. What we want to talk about specifically is about permissionless innovation. Yep. So we're taking that concept together now. Um, and as you mentioned, this has become a, a, a bigger and bigger term around technology and communications policy in the last, I don't know what, 10, 15 years or so. Uh, there is a, a friend of ours, Adam Thier, who, uh, who did a great job of promoting this idea. He himself says not his original idea. And this idea is knocked around before he wrote about it, but I will, but he, give, he's the most visible champion. I was going to say, I will idea. definitely yeah. give him credit for being probably permissionless, permissionless innovations. Number one champion. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and not least which, because I know him and like him. And so yeah. I, I want to give him those props, <laughs> but here's the way he defines it. Just so everyone has a common understanding what we're talking about. And he says that permissionless innovation refers to the notion that experimentation with new technologies and business models, should generally be permitted by default unless a compelling case can be made that a new invention will bring serious harm to society. Innovation should be allowed to continue unabated and problems, if any developed only to be addressed later. Yep. Um, I I think I like that definition. I think that encapsulates the idea of permissionless innovation uh, pretty well. Uh, But I think one response we hear often uh, and, and, and frankly, if you lean more in a libertarian uh, way, I think you hear this uh, very often generally is people immediately skip to the notion of, okay, well then the other side, this is, this is anarchy. All you want is anarchy. You want no rules. Somehow they read into this very positive definition that what you're secretly saying is we want no government. Uh, And I, and I think that that is easily debunked. I, I, I simply have never had that conversation with anyone around this topic. Yeah. And I've never heard anyone talk about it. But but I think you're right that people people do immediately leap to like, well, that's anarchy, right? Um when you hear phrases like creative destruction, right? When you hear like disruption mm-hmm. and all that kind yeah. of stuff, th- there's there's something just I think in the human psyche that doesn't like destruction and disruption. <laughs> you know, we don't we don't like that stuff, right? right? We 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 want to avoid Destruction and disruption. Uh, but those are hallmarks of an innovative, growing, progressing society. And so, you know, I, I think this idea, I think what he's really, he's well, he's hitting at several things. But one of the things he's really hitting at is that there shouldn't be preemptive regulation, right? You don't just say, because something exists, we need a regulatory regime for it. Right. Why not just sit back and see what happens? Right. 
And then, re, as, as Adam says in his definition, if any problems develop, they can be addressed at the time. So you're not preemptively regulating, you're reactively regulating. Well, you're, right? doing, you're doing something much more difficult, is, is yeah. what I would say. Yeah. And this, and this is, often goes to the heart of my gripe about the way we legislate or don't legislate these days. We legislate based on, we, we get way ahead of what's going on. Yeah. And we, um, we uh, whomever, they, whoever, yeah. we, whoever they, we want to blame guys, in this case, right. that's right, uh, decide that here's an opportunity to make a splash. And so they're going to weigh in and make a splash, uh, it, believing that somehow it's going to lead to the re- re-election. Yeah. Um, and so they get ahead of the situation when, in fact, all the people who are actually doing whatever that innovation is, so whether that's business, whether that's medical, et cetera, are trying to figure their way forward. Right. And somehow the politician who has zero to do with what's going on. Right put themselves in the situation, say, well, I know how to run this business better. I know how to run this medical practice better. I know how to you know, fill in the blank right. better. When in fact, it's not, they don't at all. They don't necessarily have any experience in the area. To the extent they do, they've heard about it from somebody else. They've never been there to do it. And and then they believe that whatever they can create sitting in their marbled halls in Washington, D.C. will be in fact the best answer for every situation going forward right. for all eternity. And at this point, I should make the point that another episode of this IPI Policy Basics podcast was done specifically on Hayek's knowledge problem. Yes. And that's what you have just described in more easily accessible terms. This idea somehow that someone in government would think they know their brain is so big and they're so smart and they're so wise that they know how this new thing ought to develop, right? Uh we we know how cryptocurrency the should one I was develop. Just thinking of, yeah. We know how uh, genetic experimentation should be done. We know how uh, the internet ought to be taxed. You know <laughs> all right. of these things, uh, and it it falls straight into Hayek's knowledge problem, which is no, you don't actually. The people who are doing the stuff, the people who are creating and inventing and refining and innovating, they're actually the ones. You ought to listen to them. They probably have a much better idea of what what the problems and opportunities are going to be than you do. Right. Sitting there in your office in the Rayburn House office building. <laughs> not that we're calling out anyone in particular. No, no, no. Of um, course not. Of course they, not. Because they could be in any number of the office buildings. Yeah. Uh, uh, the uh, Additionally, I think that when there is a already an architectural laws, and I'm going to go right at some of this uh, discussion about social media right mm-hmm. now, uh, the policymakers kind of skip to the next section. They say, well, oh, oh okay, we'll, we'll agree with you there. We won't pass the law now. But by the way, we have these laws that govern other things generally. And you said, wait till there's harm. Aha, now we see there's harm. And, and I think what happens along these lines too, that I'm going to throw into an attack on permissionless, permissionless innovation. I really have a challenge with that. Uh, <laughs> is that there's an excuse made. And that is, we, we believe there is harm, or we're now on the very precipice. Some, right. some people have been harmed, right. we right. think, uh, and we've heard about it, and so we're now going to act and we're going to create this gig- gigantic regime to change things or add on to an already gigantic regime, making it larger antitrust action, to go after companies who we believe are doing things that are, quote, wrong. That is, I just want to be clear, yep. that is not actually what you and I are talking about. Right. We would say, wait until there is actual harm. Right. Demonstrable, and, quantifiable harm. That's not right. just anecdotes and feelings. That, that, that's right. And, right. It's not, and it's not that. And then do it within a structure 
of of our constitution mm-hmm. and our liberties and only then only then act and in fact um made a, a couple notes that actually come from reading adam and um i don't remember exactly how he said it here's the way i said it, that if any restraint is needed it should then be minimal flexible and as a last resort and i think that is uh, what often gets lost as people skip to that second yeah they oh there's harm uh, yeah. we're just going to stipulate there's harm and right. now we're going to do something you know, I'm also reminded when you talk about, you know, claims of harm, and we've talked about this before in other episodes of the Policy Basics podcast, just because a market is not giving you the result you prefer, that doesn't mean there's something wrong that needs to be addressed or fixed. You know, it doesn't mean there's harm. Uh, you know, it, it's not a market failure just because it fails to deliver your preferred outcome. <laughs> That's right. And, you know, it seems like an awful lot of time what we run into here, these charges of market failure or, or these charges of harm, there's not really a market failure and there's not really harm. It's just that the the market is behaving in a way other than what some regulator or politician thinks it ought to run. That's right. And so they describe that as a market failure or consumer harm. Meanwhile, there's no consumer harm going on anywhere. And, you know, I always want to fall back here on my example of Amazon.com, right? Because these days Amazon is coming in for a lot of criticism, mostly from the progressive left, but also some from the from the right. And they want to apply, as you mentioned, these antitrust, these severe antitrust penalties to these companies. But you want to talk about consumer benefit versus consumer harm. I mean, if you were to put on one side of the scale whatever you think the perceived consumer harm is, and on the other side of the scale the consumer benefit, I mean, it is like order many orders of magnitude more consumer benefit than consumer harm. That's right. <clears throat> you know? That's right. And I think a lot of times when people are talking about market failure or consumer harm or whatever – you know they're looking at the they're looking at the tiny little anecdotal exception, and they're not really looking at the big picture. They're not looking at the overall big picture, and they're willing to sacrifice all of that consumer benefit to address a very small, you know, supposed harm. I'm going to chase a very quick rabbit here, just because it's a fascinating sure. uh, uh, thing that I've never you, you've kind of crystallized for me. Isn't it amazing that most of what we get out of of Washington D.C. and and I mean political debates. Uh, tend to be in these very stark black-white contrasts, uh, zero, zero shades of gray. And and then the people, uh, we end up kind of falling for it over and over and over again. And people run into their corners and say, well, uh, Amazon is all good or Amazon is all bad, right? So, uh, uh, or, or a particular policy is all good or all bad. When as a matter of fact, it's somewhere in, in between perhaps. Um, and I agree with you. It's hard for me to see the harm in anything that Amazon Amazon has done, uh, yep. honestly. And to the extent there is, yeah, companies make mistakes as they grow. And when I, and I think we need to give grace for that because that is the reality. Uh, but, and that's before we get to the whole question of should government be stepping into these spaces? Like, forget that. This yep. is just straight up the observation. But, but, uh, uh, I, policymakers seem very lazy because they want to craft things in this black and white stark term as opposed to let's work through the nuances because that nuance stuff is really, really difficult. And I think, um, well, it definitely does. I wonder if they think or they realize how much control it takes from them if they have to admit there's a lot of nuance. Because then all of a sudden, you're back to where we are, which is innovation should be permissionless uh, so they can go forward. But but that's not the only approach. I Mm -hmm. just want to be clear. It's not like it's either us or there is nothing else. There is a whole other uh, theory here. And actually, I'm going to ask 
uh, yeah, you you were talking about this earlier. Yeah. So if you want to talk a little bit about the precautionary principle, which is a whole different view. Yeah, of exactly, exactly. No, I think that's really important. And I think I think you have to talk about the, the opposite of permissionless innovation to really appreciate how important it is, right? Yes. So, I mean, I kind of see these as being on a spectrum. Like at one end of the spectrum is permissionless innovation, a, a, a pretty much laissez-faire approach. And then on the other end of the spectrum is what has been referred to as the precautionary principle. And you see this a lot more in, in Europe than you do in the United States. But the, you know, especially the, 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 uh, the big government types, the types who really trust government to solve problems, they tend to fall for this idea of the precautionary principle also. And essentially what the precautionary principle says is nothing should be allowed until it's been found to be safe. Right. 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 So the, the permissionless innovation is a bias toward letting people try stuff. And the precautionary principle is a bias toward not letting people try stuff until it has been cleared by some sort of an authority, a government regulator or something like that. And a great example, I think, of the precautionary principle run wild are like the regulations on like GMO foods. And we saw, again, we see more of this in Europe than we do in the rest of the world. But there have been some incredible, incredible innovations made in the area of genetically modified foods, grains that are more drought resistant, that are disease resistant, that are resistant to parasites and things and to insects devouring them and things like that. And these genetically modified foods are literally saving more lives and preventing famine, especially in places like Africa where frankly the environmental conditions are not that great for farming in a lot of places, right. and they have plagues of locusts and they have severe droughts and things like that, and genetically modified crops have have allowed countries to feed themselves who have struggled to feed themselves, and they've it's made production of food uh, more efficient, more productive, more cost effective, and those are all good things. But for people who are sort of enamored of the precautionary principle, the attitude was, oh, no, we can't let people do this. We cannot let people do this until we're absolutely sure that there's no harm. You know, we would need we need generations of testing to make sure it's not affecting people's DNA, that you're not that you're not passing things down to other generations of people. And so essentially, the precautionary principle is a a stoplight on innovation. It just, it stops it from happening. It says we're going to regulate it preemptively before we even know what the result of the, of the new invention or innovation is going to be. We're simply not going to allow things to happen until we're hundred percent guaranteed that it's safe. And of course the problem is a nothing is hundred percent guaranteed right. safe, right. right? Everything is trade-offs. But on the other hand, you know, People who are innovating are not trying to find ways to cause problems. They're trying to find ways to solve problems, right? They're trying to find ways to make human flourishing more possible, to solve diseases, right, to create more food options. I mean, innovation is driven by a very positive human impulse just to make life better for people. And if you work from that assumption— if you work from the from the assumption that innovators are trying to make things better, that businesses exist to please their customers, not to kill them and enslave them, if you work from those assumptions, that that would that would bias you toward permissionless innovation, right? That's like we'll deal with the problems as they come up 
but we're not going to just try to stop people from doing things until it's been guaranteed that it's safe. And so I think part of the implication of permissionless innovation is that there's an imperative to push back against the precautionary principle, that you don't ever want to find yourself slipping into that kind of thinking, that we're going to just ban entire areas of innovation because we can't be certain that they're 100% safe. That's right. And and, uh, we talked about risk, um, and it inherently involves risk, there's no doubt. Um, I, I do, I, you've said this word, but just a highlighter, you said the, you said optimism. Um, I think that precautionary principle is inherently a pessimistic yeah. approach. It yeah. believes that there will be harm done. And here's the thing that uh, I find amazing. And, and you, you nodded or you winked at this, uh, without saying it, you, you said that, uh, uh, people or companies or whomever's involved in, in innovation, uh, there is this idea that they're going to serve the people, their consumers, whatever, um, for whatever reason they're motivated, here's the piece that is implied there. Th- that person, always going to be a person to start at least, mm-hmm. or a group of people, have identified something that needs to be done. They have, they have data. Right. They have information in the machine, so to speak, to say, hmm, there seems to be something here that we could do better. And oh, by the way, here's this other piece of information that tells me this might be a way to improve that situation or that product or that service or whatever. Right. That is driven with information in mind. The precautionary principle comes from the, from a place of ignorance, yeah. which is a fear. I just merely believe that things are bad. Yeah. And so I won't let them go forward. Right. It has no data so, to support it. Right. It is, it is almost religion. Uh, is mm-hmm. just a faith that things must be screwed up until I can take a look at them to make sure that they're not. And so while they may get information eventually, which is what you described, it is inherently slower because they start from zero um, and number two, uh, with this idea that something certainly is going to go awry. Yeah. And I think for the, for, for people who really want to be invested in this notion of growth and liberty yeah. and innovation, I think those are two hard pills to swallow. Yeah. Now you said something about fear that things would go awry. We should point out in fairness that things often do go awry. Almost always. You know, I mean, I mean, anything can be misused. Absolutely. Right. And so while we are, while we're painting a very sort of optimistic picture of innovation and creation, right? Uh, we, we think innovators are trying to make life better for humans. We think businesses and corporations get wealthy by serving their customers, by providing their customers with goods and services that they need or want or can use. That is not to say that things don't go awry. Things can be misused. There are There are unintended consequences in the private sector, just like there are in the government sector, yes. right? Yes. So, you know, when, when Edison invented the light bulb, uh, he wasn't trying to create something that can give you an electric shock, but sometimes they do, right? you know, but, but that wasn't reason enough to ban the electric light bulb. In fact, electricity results in a certain number of houses burning to the ground every year. It is sort of an inherently dangerous thing. But the precautionary principle would have said something like, well, we can't allow this because people are going to die from electrocution. Houses are going to catch fire and burn. So we can't allow the the distribution of electricity to, you know, the ignorant masses who won't know how to use it. Right. So we're we're really talking about a bias. We're talking about in, in any given area, the bias ought to be to allow people to try new things and do new things. Right. The bias should not be to discourage people from doing new things. And you do that with a completely clear-eyed understanding 
that sometimes new things, there will be some harms from new things, and some new things can be misused. But, you know, the, the beautiful thing about market processes is you deal with all those things in real time, right? And you, and you consumers get educated, consumers learn how to handle electricity, right? They learn don't touch those two wires together. <laughs> don't stick a fork in that electric socket. You know, you learn those things. I mean, humans learn those things. And also markets develop self-correcting mechanisms. And you have you certainly have a need for an electrical code when you're building homes. Right. So there is some need for regulation. But the precautionary principle, again, would have just precluded the whole thing, I think. Well, they would have started with writing the code before they even knew right. that someone was going to stick a fork in the socket. Yeah, exactly. Which is crazy to think about because you're never going to think of all those situations. No, that's exactly right. You need right. a flexible system like we've described. That's exactly right. So Bartlett, we've we've had the sort of sort of philosophical and economic and sort of nerding out kind of a <laughs> discussion about all of this, but I think some examples would be helpful in sort of in sort of explaining to people like, you know, where the government has like gotten it right and where the government has gotten it wrong. Um, and you know, I, I think as as sort of an observation, it's 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 been pretty apparent for a long time that the areas in the economy where the most rapid innovation is taking place is tends to be the places where there's little government regulation, right? right? And so I'm thinking about things like like wireless, for instance, mm -hmm. right? Um, it took the FCC, it took regulators sort of a long time to catch up with just the explosion in wireless and the way, the way wireless communications was completely replacing, you know, the, the landline. And you had these volumes and volumes of regulations about landlines, and you had few, if any, regulations on wireless and on cell phones. And so you saw just a huge explosion in innovation there, and it, and it took regulators a while to catch up. Uh, so I think that's a good example. Um, could you think of any other examples that would be sort of illustrative of this? Yeah, one of my favorites is, uh, by, by definition, uh, in the world of broadband, there's licensed spectrum, or in the world of spectrum, I mean, there's licensed spectrum, there's unlicensed spectrum. Mm. Um, that licensed spectrum usually comes with a set of conditions. It's, it's usually, um, or I guess always, uh, has been purchased through from the government or leased from the government through uh, a corporate entity of one sort or another, yep. generally big brand names. Uh, but there's a whole, a whole notion that some of these bands, some of these spectrum bands have been left alone uh, to, to be open and free for use. And it, they used to be referred to as way back as junk bands. Mm. No, one, no one can really figure out what they were good for, if mm. they were good for anything. Well, it didn't take long because there were no regulations. There, people started figuring it out. Today, we call this Wi-Fi, mm. um, and so we we now have enormous use and desire for more and more unlicensed. That's not an accident. Yeah, uh, it's because that that area allows for more experimentation and exploration of what can be done. I, I imagine most people think of Spectrum as being kind of this fixed thing. It's it's not. It can be used for all kinds of things. Yeah, um, and so we can find the kind of the uh, highest and best use, but but in this case, two examples, highest and best use. One is kind of an auction process, allows for the highest and best allocation, perhaps, of that licensed area. And then unlicensed works together uh, with that to provide a space for experimentation and, and huge advances in that space. That's a, that's a magnificent example. So, I mean, you literally had neglected spectrum that no one valued. Right. And now, now imagine how important Wi-Fi is. Right. So yeah, people, people literally, because, so there were no regulations. Yeah. People that, right. well, what would you do with that? It's yeah. kind of like the empty lot 
Yeah. No, one, no one feels like they have to zone it because that is so undesirable. Nobody's going to care to build on yeah. it. And then yet something happens on that lot. So then oh. you have, you, so then you had like Linksys and Cisco and you had all these network companies say, Hey, we can use this. That's right. We can use this neglected property. That's right. We can use this. We can make else. something of it. That's, right. That's a great example. You know, I mean, just the internet in general, I think is a good example of, you know, we had our differences with the Clinton administration in any number of areas, but they sure did get most things right when it came to the internet. They did a, they did a very good job. Yeah. I mean, they, they made it, they made a decision. We're not going to preclude uh, commercial activity, right? We're just going to leave our, we're going to take a hands-off approach and we're just going to see if this thing turned, what this thing turns out to be. Right. 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 Uh, and then sort of a subset of internet policy is like the internet tax issue, right? Which you were very involved with when I first met you in the policy world. You were very involved uh, on this this whole idea of shall we or shall we not or how shall we tax the internet? And the decision was made for for decades, literally, to have a moratorium. That's right. On taxation. And let's let's just see if this e-commerce thing actually turns into anything. That's right. And let's not smother it with taxes. Back when we actually called it the World Wide Web, something distinct and different from the internet, which, right. by the way, is still true, but uh, they've essentially yeah. become the same. Yeah. Um, but yes, yeah, so the notion was don't, if, if you see taxation as regulation, I, I do, uh, and if you see that as, as stopping particular business models, so in other words, now you have to seek permission effectively, yeah. uh, that was absolutely the notion behind why didn't we allow discriminatory taxation? Because the, the debate then was not about whether it gets taxed, it was about whether it gets taxed at a higher level, yeah. at something more aggressive right. than what you might do in the, quote, real world, um, which always struck me as an odd and indefensible position. Uh, much more defensible would have been if it was parity, but that's not where things were. But even at parity, you were talking about layering in uh, regulation that that simply the, the whole system was, in this case, the e-commerce system, was not ready to to bear. Yeah. I mean, it took a long time for the, uh, for software, et cetera, uh, for the process to figure out how people, how were people going to buy things online? It, believe it or not, as we sit here today, it's hard to remember. It was a question whether people were going to buy things right. online. That was not a foregone conclusion. Right. Amazon pops up a bookstore and there were a lot of people that said, Amazon, this, this is crazy because mm-hmm. I can go down to the corner and, and buy a book. Yeah, what do I need the internet for? That's for? Right. right. So people who remember the, uh, you know, what was that? Middle nineties, there were bookstores everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that has all changed in the last, whatever that is, 25 years. So, uh, I, I think sometimes we sit and think today and we just think, oh, it's always been like, yeah, this. you but take, I, t- you take today for granted. That's right. But yeah. it was that innovation or that, that hands off, uh, that light touch approach that allowed, um, the growth. And now we see where we are and it turns out that Amazon is a big taxpayer. I want to touch one more point before we wrap up earlier in the podcast, when you were, uh, reading Adam's definition, mm-hmm. Uh, you said experimentation with new technologies and business models. And I think we really need to touch this before we before we wrap up. We're not just talking about innovation and creating sort of new products and services, but you also have to allow creators to experiment with new business models, new ways of actually funding ventures and new ways of having consumers pay for things. And we very often find that even a lot of our folks in the free market community don't seem to get this point. Absolutely. Right? Let, let people try new business models. And, you know, for me, the thing that just sticks in my craw here are things like states and including ours, our home state of Texas here at IPI that ban the direct sales of automobiles from companies like Tesla and Rivian 
where you literally have the state protecting a business model. The state says the only way cars and trucks can be sold in this state is through the existing traditional auto dealership model. So you've literally got a state banning innovation in business models when it comes to you know car and truck sales. So we're not just talking about being creative in the invention of new products and services, but we're also talking about being creative in finding new ways to pay for things, to finance things, new ways to get things in consumers' hands. I mean, you know, for some consumers, auto leasing makes more sense from, for them than buying the car. But imagine if there were state law that made it illegal to lease a car. Right. You know, that's simply a different business model. It's not a different product. It's a different business model. I think this issue comes up, um, it doesn't get raised enough, actually, but it does come up in a lot of privacy debates. Uh, and, and I will say in large measure, it seems because the legislators um, or, or thought leaders in the area often determine what they think is privacy and then, then try to walk that into what the business model should be. Yeah. So, for example, should I be able to trade information about me to get something in return for a business? That is the fundamental uh, advertising model. Mm -hmm. Now, we can argue about what I'm trading and whatnot, but the question should really be, should I be empowered to trade what I would like with a company that I would choose to receive something that I value? Yeah. Now, I've intentionally used very broad words because I don't think that we should be in the business of defining those, those things until, unless and until we find that there is abuse happening. And if it turns out that a certain section of society is being taken advantage of by certain company or companies, resulting in something, giving them something of really no value um, when, when analyzed through the data, I think that is a very different question than if we sit down today and say, boy, we need to create a privacy law that will protect people from being able to do what they want to do that they determine is valuable, but we've just decided, no, that's really not the way it's going to go. So I think it's exactly where that issue raises itself uh, most often these days in a policy yeah, debate. That, that's great. And that's a great point to sort of wrap up on. So in summary, I guess we would say that if you want a dynamic growing economy where consumers have regular access to new products and services and better ways of doing things, you want the bias to be toward permissionless innovation rather than, you know, like the slider. You want the slider way more in the direction of permissionless innovation than you do toward the precautionary principle. That's right. That's right. Okay, very good. Thank you, Bartlett. Well, you can find out a lot more about innovation policy and technology at our website at ipi.org. If you've enjoyed this podcast, how about giving us a favorable review on iTunes or on your favorite podcast platform? You can also help to sponsor these podcasts by becoming a member of IPI's Giving Society. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next time.